Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about. So stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Tapper. All right, here we go. You ready, Corey? I'm ready. Let's do it. Episode 62. I'm John Taffer. This is my No Excuses podcast. And I got to start by thanking everyone. This was a big week. Actually, today, Corey, was a big day. We just crossed 3 million downloads wow. of this podcast. And, man, does that feel good for me. So I thank you all very much. It feels like I got a hug from all of you. But that's a big number, 3 million. And we just started just about a year ago, what, 14 months ago or so. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited. 3 million uh, downloads. And we're approaching sometimes about 100,000 a week or so. So it's getting pretty exciting. But I love doing this, and nothing pleases me more than knowing that you guys love being here. So here we go with number 62. I had a week off this week, Corey. It was actually sort of cool. Got to spend it in Vegas. It was only 113 freaking degrees here, like (laughs) every day. It's unbearable. When you live in Vegas, and it's 110 degrees, 108 degrees, the problem is, Corey, I get in my car outside. It's like 140 degrees in a freaking car. Even if you drive a half hour, 45 minutes, it's still 80 degrees in your car. It never, ever cools off. So the heat here is brutal. <laughs> you know what everybody says in Florida? They say it's it's a dry heat. What a bunch of bull that is. Heat is heat, man. I guess the humidity is a little worse sometimes. But it is brutally hot here. And uh, start Bar Rescue next week, doing three in the Albuquerque area down in New Mexico. I hope it's a little cooler down there than it is here. And we'll be starting episode number 184, Corey, which is pretty incredible. And we're working now on 2020. And I think I told you guys last week that the, the, the network has picked up 28 episodes for next year. So I have nine more to do this year, Corey. And then uh, we'll take a month off for Christmas and the holidays. And then in January, we'll dive back in, do about 12, take a little break, and then we'll come back and do the rest of them. Okay. So Bar Rescue, new programs are going to continue at least through the end of next year. Wow. So based upon my calculations, Corey, sometime in March, we will cross the 200th episode of Bar Rescue. And when we do that, I got to tell you, buddy, that's been a real goal of mine, Corey. When we crossed 100 years ago, that was a big deal. Not a lot of reality shows cross 100 episodes. Right. So, I mean, something like that is, is... is uh, a really gratifying to personally when, when you start to attain records like that. No different than awards in a bar business that I've won or, or any time you get recognition from peers or audience or customers. It always feels incredibly good. And, and man, uh, crossing 200 episodes is a heck of an accomplishment. I'm really, really proud of that. So uh, um, it's interesting when we think about all the quotes all the stuff that came out of those 183 bar rescues that we've already done. How about the, I don't embrace excuses, I embrace solutions? Or shut it down, or justify yourself, or you lazy, or you just ignorant? All that stuff has lasted all these years, and all they were were just lines in the moment. And uh, never any planning for any of these things. They just seem to come out. And uh, uh, it's amazing that they've lasted all these years. And now when I say them, people smile because they've heard them all before. Anyway, we got some interesting congressional national days this week, buddy. And sometimes I think they've, they've just gone out of their way. Like, today is International Bow Day. Now, I don't know if that's the bow of a boat. I don't know if we're supposed to bow to each other. I'm guessing we're supposed to bow to each other. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah, I'm going to go with that one, too. National Aviation Day. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I got a plan. I'll go with that one. National Soft Ice Cream Day. Okay. That's pretty good. National Radio Day. Okay. National Chocolate Pecan Pie Day. Now, you notice it isn't Pecan Pie Day. It's Chocolate Pecan Pie Day, which is interesting. They actually designated it. National Brazilian Blowout Day is August 21st. Now, 
I'm sort of a fan of Brazilians, but I'm not sure. I'm a fan of Brazilian blowout, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) National Spumoni Day is also the 21st, National Senior Citizens Day, and, of course, National Congressional Startup Day. What a crock of shit that is. So they're all going to go to work and start arguing again. It was almost nicer when they were home these past couple weeks, don't you think, Corey? Yeah. A lot less hate in the air. Right. A lot less screaming, a lot less investigations. It's sort of nice when they take some time off. How about if we make Congress part-time? Oh, bring them in like one week a month. The rest of the time, they just got to shut the hell up and not talk at all. No cameras allowed whatsoever. National Bean Better Day. I had to read that one twice. National Bean Better Day. Okay. Bean Better Day. So not only should you bean, Corey, but you should bean better. Right. (laughs) This way. Okay. National Tooth Fairy Day. National Pecan Tort Day. National Ride the Wind Day. Oh, wait, John, John, we got to go back. August 22nd, that's my birthday. Oh, it's your birthday, okay. Yeah. So it's also Corey's birthday. Yeah. <laughs> so I think people should post online, happy birthday, Corey. Are you expecting people to send you gifts? Um, I hope so. Well, no. I got, I'm going to make sure you get a gift from me. <laughs> One free shut it down button. Battery's not included, of course. All right, perfect. Okay. So it's National Tooth Fairy Day, Pecan Tort Day, I told you. National Ride the Wind Day. National Sponge Cake Day. You know, it's interesting. If a sponge cake is light enough... It can ride the wind, can't it? National Maryland Day, National Peach Pie Day, National Waffle Day. I can get down with that. National Park Service Founders Day. Okay, so some guy really took care of himself. I founded the national parks. I'm putting in the day to commemorate myself. National Whiskey Sour Day. I'm all for that. National Kiss and Makeup Day. Hmm. Hmm. So that is Saturday, Corey. So National Secondhand Wardrobe Day. And you ready for the finale? I'm ready. National Banana Split Day winds up the Ooh. weekend. It's a pretty damn exciting week in national days, if you ask me. Yeah, it is. So some interesting things going on out there. For example, Disney is now entering the streaming service. And you know what's fascinating? Netflix. And I talk about this all the time on this podcast, what I call these new businesses. And I'm going to talk about one in a couple of minutes. People started these businesses small, and because of the world of the Internet, they grow so quickly. Netflix is now one of the largest media companies in the world. Wow. And the other largest media company world is Disney. And Disney is now chasing Netflix with a streaming service with all of their content on it for about six ninety nine a month. A little which, late. A yes. little late in the game. Yeah, it's not easy to chase a Netflix. Or I love when people say, well, we're going to compete against Amazon. You know, they, they have like a five-lap head start. Right. You're going to have to run pretty quick to catch up with an Amazon. Well, good luck to Disney. They got a lot of content. And now what happens is the wars start to happen. And it's interesting because I've seen this being in the cable content business myself. So now Disney's not going to want to give their content to Netflix, are they? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And now Netflix is not going to share their content with Disney, are they? Right. So now they're going to draw up their lines. You're not going to see content moving from one to the other, and it's going to become this compartmentalized competitive environment, and they're going to stick it to us because we're not going to be able to see the same content on either site. So we're going to have to buy both Disney and Netflix. And that's the game. Think about it. If I took Bar Rescue off TV and forced you all to buy it from me, in theory, some of you would buy it from me, right? In theory, Corey, I could make more money selling it to you directly than getting paid through the network when I sell it with them. Yeah, Make sense? That's true, yeah. So that's the game. So what Disney does is they lock up their content. They don't share it with any of these other services. And now you're forced, in essence, held hostage to do business with them. And that's the media business today. It's compartmentalizing content so we don't share it with each other, and it's being extremely predatory in a way that we promote against each other. And that's now what we're going to see between Disney and Netflix. It's interesting to see how it all plays out, right, and how Disney actually does. The one thing Disney has, and that's powerful to them, that Netflix didn't. Remember, Netflix started with a concept and no content. Disney comes to the table with some of the greatest content in the world. Uh, not only the Cinderella's and the Little Mermaid's, but unbelievable film content. So Disney steps to the table with an advantage over Netflix in that they have the content, but they're late in the game. It would be interesting to see how it plays out, Corey. So I've been reading a lot about about network, about online and network security. 
And we had a gentleman by the name of Mark Paschke who was on this very podcast, Corey, a few months ago. Yep. Who was one of the world's leading trendists. And we talked about online security and, and, and you know, all of these voice recognition services like Siri and such. And you know, he talked a lot about it. So I've been doing a lot of research on it. And here's what's interesting. If you take a look at Alexa, for example, Corey, and you hear that Alexa is listening to everything you say. It is listening to everything you say. But here's what's fascinating when you really look into it. The companies aren't interested in who's saying it. They're only interested in what you're saying, and here's why. Let's take a look at a voice assistant for a moment. You know all these new digital answering services? Yeah. Right? And they're, and they're computers. And if you ask them a question, they can answer the question. It takes about 20,000 hours of a computer system listening to phone calls to be able to develop the patterns and the world word processes and, and the procedures and the responses and all of the things necessary to engage in conversation. It takes about 20,000 hours for a computer to be able to converse with you. So it has to study. It has to learn what we say. In that case, the computer that's listening to us is learning what we're saying. It doesn't give a damn who's saying it. Make sense? Makes sense. Well, in very many ways, that's what companies that function with products like Alexa are doing. And here's the logic. Corey, if you wanted to buy a widget and suddenly you're asking Alexa about widgets and I'm asking about widgets and 100,000 other people are asking about widgets. Now what happens is the widget vocabulary is developed within the Alexa system because it's listening to all these conversations. Make sense? Ah, uh, okay. It learns all the new phrases. It learns all the new products. It learns everything wow. as it listens to us. So it's our words and our phrases that are important to these software companies. So they don't know specifically that you said it, Corey. They could probably track it if they wanted to. Right. But that's not what they're doing. They're interested in what you're saying so they can learn from it and develop artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence is created by data. The more data, the better the artificial intelligence. So when they have millions of Alexa units all across the country and we're all talking, sharing preferences, think of the learning that that artificial intelligence system gains. So I ask us, I don't know the answer to this question. I struggle with it myself. Do we want that or not? Corey, do we want artificial intelligence to listen to everything we say to learn everything and be able to converse with us, in essence, replacing the human element? I guess some people could say, yeah, I want that. That's really convenient, John. I can push a button and get whatever I want. I can you know, research data, blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of arguments to that. But then there's other people that say no. I don't know where I quite come down on that. Yeah, I don't know. And I wonder what the listeners think. You know, really, would you give up your privacy and understand that you are for the purpose of developing a better artificial intelligence, I'll say, world for us all? Or would you rather not give up your privacy and have a maybe less efficient, less capable artificial intelligence system for us all? It's a tough choice. And I'm not sure where I quite land on it, but it is fascinating to think about it and understand that all of these systems are just a result of what we teach them by our own actions. And the more they listen, the more they learn, which is fascinating. And now what the companies have to do is get us to understand this so I'm more comfortable with it. Because I haven't automated my house, for example. I don't have any kind of voice-activated systems in my house. Uh, uh, I have a menu system on my phone where I can turn lights on and off. But I don't have a voice system because I'm still scared to make that move and put this listening device in my house. And a lot of it is because these companies don't define it for us. And if I really understood what they listened to and what they didn't, I might get a lot more comfortable. And I'm guessing you'd have to, too. The other thing that we learned a lot about artificial intelligence uh, when Mark was on a show was, was the fact that, that it has to be managed by humans. If we let artificial intelligence manage itself, it will, in theory, take over the world as it gets smarter than we do. It's a pretty good one, Corey. Imagine you go to an airport... You go through TSA, somebody hands you a note in TSA. It's a little piece of paper. You don't think much about it. You're walking. And as you get to the other side of TSA and now you're walking down the concourse, the supervisor screams, read your note. And you open up the note and it says, quote, you ugly. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened. Now, this was all on video and the airport (laughs) worker got fired for giving a traveler a note that said, 
you ugly. Not you're ugly. <laughs> you ugly. Wow. So it's it's pretty incredible. Can you imagine how ugly this person must have been? Right. <laughs> to cause this employee to specifically risk employment, take the time to write this note and hand it to this person. The funny part would be if this TSA employee had been there for years, served hundreds of thousands of customers, Corey, and this is the one who was ugly enough to justify the note. All right, so Florida, down in Florida, <laughs> this woman tells the story. Mary Lou Ward tells the story. This is hysterical. Tells the story that she heard the loudest sound she has ever heard, and she also smelled smoke, a bolt of lightning hit her septic tank and caused the toilet in her house to explode. Oh. And that, my friend, was a shitty situation, if yeah. you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so, could you imagine that? Your entire uh, a toilet just completely explodes. Oh, man. I was talking earlier, and we were talking about small business and how it can turn into something from nothing. There's a company now called Boxed Wholesale. These guys started in their garage, Corey. And their logic would be that they would be a Costco sort of a store online. So you could get the huge packs of toilet paper and paper towel, you know, oh, all, gotcha. all those large, you know, mini pallets, if you will, size uh, uh, products that you get from Costco and Sam's Warehouse and the big warehouse stores. So they created this online warehouse club that, that delivers bulk in straight to your door. And within just a couple of years, they just hit $100 million in gross revenue. Jeez. Within about three years after the launch, 36 months, they were out of the garage. Post-garage, they're now doing $100 million plus. And they're going to cross about $111 million, where that's where they're at so far this year. Think about this. And all of us who wait and pause and hesitate, a simple thing, and you'd think to yourself, ah, you know, who's going to buy 40 rolls of toilet paper at once online, Corey, right? Right. Ah, nobody's going to do that. Bullshit. People are doing it. Many years ago, and I won't say what year it was, I was in Seattle, and somebody gave me a business plan for a company that was called Starbucks. <laughs> and I have it here in my file somewhere. And I forget the number. If like 100K I could have bought, I don't know, 8% of the company, whatever the heck it was. And I read this business plan. And in the business plan, the guy was operating in Seattle. He had proposed that he would have about 3,000 coffee shops. And I read this, and I said to myself, oh, come on. 3,000 coffee shops across America, all they're selling is coffee. And, and you know, they're going to get three to four bucks a cup for it. I thought to myself, they should name the company Starbucks. Uh, they should name it four bucks instead of Starbucks. But the fact of the matter is, I was dead wrong. Look at Starbucks today. Yeah. So whenever we think of these ideas and people say no, 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 don't say no. Remember, the people who say no should get out of the way so the people who say yes can move forward. These guys move forward, and now they got a $111-plus million-dollar business, and they were just purchased, huge equity purchase, by a large Japanese grocer called Aeon Inc. So now they have like a Whole Foods kind of partner, and they're expanding their whole product line. These guys are going to be billionaires because they said yes when other people say no. And I ask you. How many times have you thought of a great idea, thought about something, and rather than just acting, you didn't? So I think you should act. And I think you should think to yourself about why you don't act and what holds you back. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Boy, Corey, to get your TV today, how many subscriptions do you have to have? Oh, man, way too many. It's ridiculous between the Hulos and the Netflix and cable and then satellite delivery services and HBO. By the time you're done, you have 20, 30 subscriptions, and you're paying everybody just to watch TV. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. I want to say it again, free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. No credit card needed, no sign-up. Pluto TV is the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies. What are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again. Download Pluto TV for free on all your favorite devices today. Shut it down! All righty, Corey. I'm starting to shake already, buddy. It's nerve-wracking. The sweat is starting to come out on my brow. The pressure is building. 
because it's time for In the Dark. Just a moment to the show where you guys send audio clips asking me anything, making any kind of comment. I don't know what the hell they are. Corey gets them in the mail, right, Corey? I do. You pick the ones that you want to pick? Yep. Do I have anything to do with picking them? No, you do not. Have I ever heard of these before? No, you have not. All right, buddy, you can <laughs> hand me the envelope when you're ready. Let's All do right. the first one. Let's do it. Hey, John, big fan here. I have a hard question for you. What was your biggest embarrassment in your career, and how did it work out later in your career, and did it affect people in your life, um, personally or business relation-wise? Wow. The biggest embarrassment in my career. Hmm. Embarrassment implies that it would be something public. Now, I've had businesses that when I was young that had failed that, you know, certainly embarrassed me when they closed. But I'm trying to think of a publicly embarrassing moment that I've had, Corey. And and I'm not coming, really something coming to mind. You know, I, I remember years ago when I closed a nightclub in Chicago. That was a bummer. That was a little embarrassing for me. I remember... <laughs> I remember times that I've put on people on stage that were a little embarrassing to me. Uh, uh, but honestly, there's no huge embarrassing moment that's really come up with me other than a couple of years ago I was filming. <laughs> I was doing, I was speaking at the uh, NAFTA convention, which is the National Association of Broadcasters convention. I was doing an interview with Larry King. And I watched the video after my fly was open the whole time, Corey. But I didn't know it at the moment. I knew it after the fact, and I was wearing dark pants. And, of course, I happened to wear white underwear that day. Thank God it wasn't polka dots. And everybody could see that little white opening in the front of my pants. But I can't really think of anything much more embarrassing than that. Sorry, buddy. All right, let's move on. Listen up, John. I have a question for you. I have been a fan of yours for a very, very long time. I've loved Bar Rescue. I tell all my friends about it. And I was really excited to hear that you had a podcast. And I would love to support some of your sponsors, but I'm a woman, so I don't have erectile dysfunction. So I would like to use Pluto TV, but you're not on it. If I want to watch Bar Rescue or Marriage Rescue, I have to download the Paramount Network from where? And then I download it and what else is on there? Wife Swap? Bullshit. Why don't you get on Pluto TV if you're so excited about it? Thanks. Oh, boy. I'm busted now, Corey. She's fired up. She is, and I don't blame you, because this is exactly the kind of stuff that we were talking about before. So you go to Pluto TV, there's no bar rescue. So now you got to sign up for this, then you got to sign up for that. If you have basic cable that includes the Paramount Network, you can go to the Paramount app. You can sign up. Just put in your cable ID number, and you can watch on the Paramount app anytime you want for free. Meanwhile, as far as Pluto is concerned, Corey, we're going to have to make a phone call about that, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm going to tell you guys a little secret about Bar Rescue, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say this, but I will. You don't see a lot of Bar Rescue in a lot of other places because, candidly, the show does so well for Paramount, and the marathons do so well that they don't want to put the show in a lot of other places. And that's the way television works. When a property is really successful in TV, they keep it to themselves. You with me, Corey? They run it themselves. Right. Once the, the power curve is done and the ratings start to drop, then they start to syndicate it out and give it to the Hulus and everyone else of the world. So, you know, there's different business models in, in the television business. I'm really proud to say Bar Rescue is so successful, and it's been such a cash cow for the network that they're not so quick to share it with everyone else. So consider my butt slapped <laughs> by this call because <laughs> I don't have a great response, so... Thank you. <laughs> All right, last one. Hey, John. Got a question for you. I know you've rescued a couple bars in the past that were a little more edgy slash rock punk themed. I love watching those episodes on Bar Rescue because I can relate as a retired bartender who loved that type of music and atmosphere. When you were growing up and currently now, did you ever play any instruments? And what type of music is your favorite to listen to and to play? Thanks again. Boy, those are great questions. So uh, here's the answer to the question. Uh, when I was uh, 9, maybe 8, to 16 years old, I took drum lessons. And I took drum lessons for about 7 years. I took jazz drum lessons. I was damn good. Played in a bunch of bands uh, when I was in high school. Played in a bunch of bands in Los Angeles, even when I ran the Troubadour. And uh, even right now, and you know this, Corey, I have a complete electronic drum set in my office at home. So uh, a complete electronic drum set. I play all the time. 
Matter of fact, I played over the weekend. Just yesterday, I played for about an hour or so. I have various sets that I put together. I'll put my headphones on. I'll set up an iTunes set or whatever, and I still continue to play. I, I must confess that I'm more of a rock person than I am a hip-hop person these days, but there are exceptions to the rule. I love a great melody. I love a great hook on a song. You know, it could be hip-hop. It could be classic rock. It could be alternative. It could be country. A great song is a great song. And my wife, Nicole, and I both have very broad tastes in music. But I must confess that, you know, I'm a little partial to some classic rock. I'm a little partial to Hendrix sometimes. I'm a little partial to a little cream. I'm a little partial to guitar music uh, in very many cases. And uh, my favorite bars to do, yep, you guys read it right, is when I can do a great rock and roll bar. There's nothing better than a great rock and roll bar. But music is a big part of my life. And I tell this to people all the time. When I'm not playing my drum set and I'm driving in my car, Corey, then I play my steering wheel. Oh, yeah. But I'm always drumming somewhere. Well, that wasn't so bad. They're getting tougher, though, aren't they? No, yeah. I think there's, people are starting to get the hang of it. So, so, so yeah. So next week, I'm probably going to get my ass kicked is what's probably going right. to happen. So let's keep them coming. I love the tough ones, guys. And uh, In the Dark is a fun segment. If you guys play with us on this, we can really turn it into something great. And when I come back, I'm going to be with Anthony Yoon, who is known as America's Holistic Beauty Doc. And I could probably use a little work. So we'll talk to Dr. Yoon when I come back. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Are you a reality TV fan? Well, if you are, you can get your fix with Rob's sister Nino on Rob Has a Podcast here on Podcast One. Join two-time Survivor as he talks to some of the biggest names in reality TV and covers the hottest competition shows like Survivor, Amazing Race, Big Brother, and more. Download new episodes of Rob Has a Podcast every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You know, it's funny, Corey, when you run a business day-to-day, you know, talking to people is easy. You know, you and I talking together is easy. You know, working on things is easy. You know, payroll and accounting is what's really, really tough in a business. Because the fact of the matter is a lot of people don't put the time into it, and then it bites them in the butt when the numbers don't work. And running a business doesn't have to be difficult. With Square Payroll Services, you can easily pay your W-2 employees and 1099 contractors online in just a few clicks. You can file your taxes, offer benefits like the 401K, and more. And Square Payroll is integrated with Square POS, so time cards and tips are automatically imported into payroll. And they offer fair and flexible pricing that scales with your business. Just $29 per month plus $5 per employee per month. I'm talking about simple pricing. No hidden fees and no long-term contracts. Square Payroll is a win for any business. Right now, my listeners can receive three free months of Square Payroll by visiting square.com slash go slash taffer. That's square.com slash go slash taffer to receive three months of Square Payroll. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. So, Doctor, I am thrilled to have you here. I want to welcome Dr. Anthony Yoon, who's known as America's Holistic Beauty Doc. Welcome, Doctor. Nice to have you, Anthony. Thank you so much, John. It's my pleasure to be here. You know, I get to work with people all the time on solving business issues and business issues, and I work so hard myself, and I was captivated by your story, honestly. I was also... I was also overwhelmed by, by how good you are at what you do, Candley. I don't want to make you blush. But your story really started when you had plastic surgery as a young man, right? It did, yeah. And I grew up this kind of nerdy Asian kid uh, in the middle of Michigan with no friends, no confidence. And, and I had this jaw that grew to j- more than Jay Leno size. So I ended up, yeah, I ended up having surgery to set it back after high school. And that really set, sent me into a whole different tra- trajectory in my life. So at a young age, you learn that you can change the way you look. Yeah. And how you feel about how you look can make a huge impact on your life and your confidence. Yeah. And as I'm sure you've shared so many times that self-confidence is huge. I mean, women find that more attractive than anything in men, and I lack that for a good part of my life. And it's interesting. It, it wasn't your jaw. It was the confidence that it gave you after you fixed it. Exactly. It's almost funny, cause and effect. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is I had the surgery, and I thought, hey, you know, I mean, I didn't have girls that would look twice at me until then. <laughs> and then after I had the surgery, I thought, oh, they're going to all love me. And nobody looked twice at me. And it wasn't until years later when I was in medical school where I actually developed some self-confidence that I actually found girls who were interested in me. 
Wow. So, so when did you decide to become a doctor? Were you very young when you knew you wanted that course? Yeah, I basically, the day I was born, my parents decided I was going to be a doctor. Ah. It's kind of this Asian doctor thing. My dad uh, grew up on a rice farm in Korea, and by becoming a physician, he pulled his entire family out of poverty and basically wow. lived the American dream. Wow. So, so he decided the day I was born that, hey, you know, doctor equals success, so my son's going to be a doctor. Well, I'm glad he made that choice because you've helped an awful lot of people. Your book, uh, 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 Playing God, is, is, is really a remarkable book in that it talks about your journey as a doctor. And the fact that you, you went to medical school, got your degree, started residency, you thought you were a doctor then, but I guess you learned years later that you really weren't yet. Talk about, no. talk about that realization that you went through, if you would. Yeah, so just like you said, I mean, people don't necessarily know that just because you have an MD after your name doesn't mean that you're a, a true person who you can look to to save lives. Uh, for example, there's a story from my book where I was a first-year, re- second-year resident, so first year in my residency after internship, and I was called to a code where somebody was basically dying, and it was my job to resuscitate this person. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. My intern had no idea what we were doing, and here's this woman moments from dying, I take the the actual uh, defibrillators, the paddles, I put them on her chest, and thinking that I'm on TV, I yell, clear! And the nurse grabs my hands, moves them into the right position, steps away, and says, go ahead. I yell, clear again, shocked the patient, basically restarted her heart. But if it was up to me, if I had not known what I was doing, I actually would have shocked her liver had it not been for the nurse that saved me and helped save this patient. So, you know, when you start at that level, how do you get from that level where you have absolutely no clue to becoming that doctor that people come to and say, oh, thank God you're here? You know, there seems to be an underlining, you know, and I always try to narrow things down to a few words if I can. And when I think about reading your story and, and looking at your books, you are, if I were to pick a word, you've developed a compassion around medicine. You actually looked at your practice really from the shoes of a patient. You go at it in a very, and I just don't, the word compassionate isn't good enough, doctor. But oh, thank you. there's a different approach to what you do because you've seen patients suffer as the result of surgery. And I know there's a story that you told about a patient. Share with me how that happened. Because when you started as a doctor, you were trained almost, and I'm going to put these words in your mouth. If you disagree, please tell me. You were trained to rely on science. After you really got good on it, at it, you were trained to rely more on yourself, if you will. Is that fair? No, I think it is. And I think there's so much more to the practice of medicine than what we're taught in medical school. So just like you said, you know, I went through four years of traditional medical school. I got my MD. I did three years of general surgery residency. I worked in the ICUs and did trauma, two years of plastic surgery residency and a year fellowship. And here I am on seeing a patient. Okay, for example, she's 80 years old. And this patient really changed the trajectory of my career. She was 80 years old. She had had open heart surgery where they literally saw the sternum in half to get at the heart. They fixed her heart. They, they wired the sternum back and it got infected. So they called me as a plastic surgeon to come and fix it. So I go see her, her chest had become infected. And the way we fix it is we move muscles into the area to rebuild it and to get rid of the infection. Six hour operation went super smoothly. Uh, she went to the ICU afterwards and she healed great for the first six weeks. And then all of a sudden she transferred from the floor where she was almost gonna go home back to the ICU because she had a massive heart attack. So I go to see her. I spent the past six weeks really blood, sweat, and tears taking care of this patient, my right. patient. And here she is on the ventilator and all, everybody's saying she's going to die. So I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm a surgeon. I'm used to interventions. The only thing I could think of is I went and I took her hand and I held her hand for a few minutes and said a few prayers. And then every day for the next two weeks, I would come back hold her hand for a few minutes and just silently pray and be with her. And every day they would tell me she is going to die. Any minute now, it's going to be over. And one day after two weeks, I walk in and holy crap, she is sitting up in bed, smiling at me off the ventilator, just like that. And I said to her, I said, oh my gosh, like you're, 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 
you're going to live. You know, you survived. You're going to live. And she said, you know what, Dr. Yoon, I need to tell you something. And I said, well, what is that? And she said, I knew. I knew that every day you came in here and you held my hand. And I looked forward to it every day. And she said three words I remember to this day. She said, you saved me. Wow. And uh, and this was a time in my career where I had hit rock bottom. I had uh, financial major difficulty. I actually was considering leaving the profession of medicine altogether. Wow. And she pulled me out of that and really taught me that it's more to it than just what you learn about the procedures. You know, any, you know, any plastic surgeon can can perform this operation, but can you actually care for the patient? And sometimes that's worth more than all of these interventions that we do. Just a kind hand and somebody holding your hand and praying for you can really make a difference. You know, it's interesting. Uh, um, I lost my mother a few years ago and, uh, um, you know, in hospice and went through all that. And uh, I found that in as many doctors are in a room, there is a certain spirituality to one's will. Mm-hmm. And that you can, you can increase one's will as a doctor, can't you? Yeah, and you know it's interesting because as I've done procedures, there are times where I can feel that it's not just me doing this operation. As odd as this may sound, as kind of otherworldly or surreal as yeah. this may sound, um, there are times where I know that it's not just me. And sometimes, you know, there's a story in the book where it really hit me, and um, and this was something that it's kind of odd. But I had a patient. If it's okay, is it, to tell this quick story? Sure. Um, I had this patient, and she was in her 60s, and uh, I had just started coming out of the funk that I was in. Uh, I saw the patient I just you know, explained mm-hmm. to you earlier, and this was a woman who came into my office, and she was wobbling on um, a cane. Uh, she was bent over. She was morbidly obese. She had so many medical issues. She was hypertensive, diabetic. She was on uh, blood thinner. She had multiple heart attacks, and she said, Dr. Yoon, I have seen 15 other plastic surgeons and you're my last hope. Will you please help me? So I said, well, what's, you know, what, what's going on? So she said, I had a tummy tuck surgery by a different surgeon. And afterwards, I developed this terrible infection. And my entire tummy basically died. The tissue died. It turned black. It got infected. I had some type of flesh-eating bacteria. I underwent multiple operations. And now my tummy is this scarred-up mess. And she said, it's so painful uh, I can barely walk. And she said, the one thing is I've got a granddaughter and I just ask you if you could help me to be able to hold her again because I can't mm. do it now. So I look, you know, you look at her medical history and it's like, oh my gosh, there's, she has a complication waiting to happen, you know, and yeah. not, not just minor, but major. I mean, this woman can die on the operating room table. So any doctor would look at this and say, you're crazy if you are going to operate on her. She's a horrible surgical candidate. Yeah. But I felt, and I felt this in many times in my career, that there was something else there and that I was chosen basically to help her and that this was just the right thing. It was the right thing to do. So I tell her, look, no promises. I said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I will do this for you. I just, I can't promise you what's going to happen. So the surgery goes absolutely perfectly. She comes back to see me about a month later, bringing in this this carrot cake that she had baked. Now her insurance, of course, her insurance rejected the claim as cosmetic, so they didn't pay anything for it. And she came in, no no pain, walking normally, and she said, look, Dr. Yoon, I know you didn't get paid for the surgery. I don't have any money, but I'm hoping that you'll take this as payment in full. And I said, of course I will. Uh-huh. And she said, I need to tell you something. She said, yesterday was the first day in years that I was able to hold my granddaughter in my in my arms, you know, and in my lap. And she said, I just want to thank you for it. So it's times like that where it's like even when I was doing the surgery, I knew that that it wasn't just me that was in that operating room. It wasn't just me and my team and the patient. There was somebody else there with me. And and there have been multiple times in my career where I felt this, where you look at it on paper, you go, This is not the thing you should do, but you just know inside that it's gonna be okay. And every single time, it is. Now, maybe next time it won't be. I hope that's not the case. But, uh, what, but it has been that way. But, but, but you're going into it for all the right reasons, doctor. It wasn't a financial motivation. It wasn't a fill a schedule. It was, it was you were motivated by seeing her put her granddaughter back on her lap again. It exactly. wasn't, it wasn't I, about cosmetics. It was none of that. 
No, and it's kind of this whole idea that surgeons, you know, there's this saying that we play God, and that's the title of the book. And for me, it's like I've I've, under, I've met so many surgeons along the way who feel like they're God. They have their noses in the air, and yeah. they think that that they walk on water. And when in reality, it's it's not the case. That's not the case. It's like I need God to help me, and yeah. that's kind of the idea behind the book and what I've figured out in my 15 career in private 15 year career in private practice is that I can't do this by myself. Yeah, so you're more of an instrument of rather than God itself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. And yeah. I mean, with all the, everything I've been through with, I mean, there are some st- there are stories that this isn't something that I could get through by myself. Yeah. You know, when, when I read about you and your story, one of the things you talk about is just wrestling with the healthcare system, mm-hmm. you know, wrestling with the insurance companies, wrestling with process and procedure. So here you are, and again, I don't want to make you blush, doctor, but you're a noble guy. You're trying to do good for people. You care about every patient you can. And then there are sort of these systematic roadblocks, if you will, or barriers that you have to deal with along your way to just care for someone. Is those barriers too much of your life? Does it occupy too much of your time? What are your feelings and I've had health CEOs on this show, and we've talked about the health crisis, but I've never looked at it from your seat. How much does it frustrate you every day? It is extremely frustrating. I mean, to the point where, you know, as a plastic surgeon, I do cosmetic and reconstructive surgery. You know, if I do a cosmetic procedure, I get paid three times what a, what a reconstructive procedure would pay me per hour. Three times, sometimes four times. And on top of that, when we try to get paid for the reconstructive surgeries, it's chasing the money. You know, quite often, I'd say probably no joke, 20 to 20 to 30 percent of the time when we submit something to get paid, I get rejected for it. Yeah. You know, and it really is frustrating because it's not just me. That's the issue. It's the patient because they need this type of care. And unfortunately, as you know, the healthcare system is set up basically to prevent people from using it. And so, yes, I mean, we don't want to use it frivolously and waste resources, but when somebody truly needs care, there's an impediment there. And I feel for my patients. The other thing that it does, though, is it also sets up this antagonistic relationship between sometimes the doctor and the patient. Because, you know, with now with how the insurance companies are and they have these massive deductibles and co-pays, you know, I tell you, I perform reconstructive surgeries on people they, the insurance say, hey, we're covering it. And what they cover is they say, okay, we're paying for it, but now you have to collect all the money from the patient because it's part of their deductible. So you need to bill the patient $250 and get it from them. Now you're the bad guy. Exactly. Because <laughs> the patients say, well, I've got insurance. Why do I have to pay for this? And a lot of patients don't really understand how those deductibles and co-pays work. And then it just makes it this difficult situation because you don't want to shake them down, you know, but you're running a business and you got to pay your employees and your rent and everything. So it's definitely a very difficult time in medicine. And and I wish I had the answers, but I don't. And I don't know if anybody truly does. You know, it's interesting. I'm on the executive board of the Cleveland Clinic and I Mm -hmm. work here in Nevada uh, uh, with an organization called Keep Memory Alive, which is the Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health. And it's a very important charity and a very important activity that I'm involved. So I get to get exposed to medical science and I get to work with and talk to great neurological doctors and and, and all sorts of research specialists. And, you know, one thing I found is, you know, medical insurance companies often say no, but then when you resubmit it and get your voice a little louder, suddenly it gets approved. So so, it seems too ambiguous where I come to see you on the assumption that it's going to be covered. Then I find out it's not going to be covered. Now I'm terrified I have this bill for multi-thousands of dollars. Then I find that, wait a minute, resubmit it, tell them, no, I'm not going to accept it. And suddenly they cover it all except the 250 that you and I are talking about. And it's so frustrating for the patient because I wonder how many patients don't resubmit it and don't stand up and don't fight against it and get reimbursed in that case. I'm guessing you see that often. Oh, exactly. That's that's why they do it is because they want to they hope that you're going to give up and just pay for it yourself. And and it's wrong. You know, and that's that's what we deal with. Unfortunately, you know, when people are going bankrupt just to try to pay for their health care when they're sick, there's definitely something wrong in our society. And, and I wish that there was a simple answer to it. 
Um, but unfortunately, there, there isn't. You know? it, but it, does, it is so complex. It does come, yeah, it does come down as a, to a, as a physician to just really not trying to worry so much about that and just taking care of the patient in the end. And, and that's what I was just going to say. You have to put all this noise aside, all this frustration aside, and just look eye to eye with the patient and just do what's best for them. And I'm guessing it's frustrating, but it's just the way it is. So you go about it. Yeah, and I think today's doctors, it's very different than when I went through medical school. You know, I, I am an entrepreneur and that I own my own practice, but the majority of doctors going into practice now, it's not the same. Most of them are employees of big hospitals and corporations. You know, you don't have necessarily that small town doctor where you can call that doctor after hours yeah. uh, anytime. You know, my patients, if they have any issues 24 7, they can call me. And yeah. uh, But if you're a hospital employee, you're off the clock. And yep. you have to talk to whoever's covering at that time. And it's a new person every day often. Right? And there's no it continuity in care in that case yep. as well. You know, I don't get to see you every time and, and build that relationship and have you have that knowledge of my history. Uh, um, exactly. Also, I'm guessing as a doctor, you can look at one's chart and one's history, but then you can look in one's eyes and come up with a very different determination, I'm guessing, when you're really talking <laughs> to somebody. So, Some, I'm yeah, guessing, sometimes definitely... It's not what you see on the surface, no question. And yeah. we have patients, especially in plastic surgery, where you know you meet somebody and you look at them, and as you get to know them, you start figuring out, wait a minute here, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Yeah. You know, in today's day, with, with the depth of research that we have, and you use the word holistic, which is, is, is a, a, a powerful term because it's a completely different approach to medicine. Talk about how you define your holistic approach. Yeah, so th this all started, you know, I was about 10 years in practice, and I was doing really, really well. My practice was really the top in Metro Detroit, and I was operating on so many people. People would fly in from across the country yeah. to see me. You got famous. But I had this, you yeah, got famous. I had this patient. Yeah, I mean, I was on yeah. Rachel Ray, yep. Dr. Oz, and all that. And, but I had this patient who came in for a facelift, just very routine, did her surgery. Everything went super smoothly, and I left the hospital. My pa facelift patient spent the night. And I'm driving back to my office. I'm 10 minutes out of the hospital, and I get this page from the hospital, 911, your patient is bleeding, come back now. And now is all in capitals. Wow. So I zip my car around, I, U I do a U-turn, and I floor it to go back to the hospital. Now, at this time, I'm speeding, getting, going around cars. I'm technically hoping, honestly, that a cop would try to pull me over because then, uh, then maybe that cop would open up the, the roads for me and get me there. So if anybody, you know, plastic surgeons, we know that if you do a facelift and somebody starts bleeding, you go from zero to 100 in literally two minutes. And the fear is that the neck and the lower face will fill up with so much blood that the person can actually suffocate from oh it. Oh, my gosh. Can choke from it. Wow. So I get to the hospital. I'm running up the steps, taking three steps at a time, run into her room, and she's sitting up in bed, and she looks like Jabba the Hutt. Her neck is so filled up with blood, you can't barely tell her face from her neck. Oh my God. I throw two gloves on and not even sterile. I take a pair of scissors and basically cut all of her stitches out and pull out handfuls of blood from her neck, mm -hmm. deflating the neck and basically saving her. So I bring her to surgery. I stop all the bleeding, um, close everything up. And thank God, even now, this is several years later, she looks great. There's no sign she had any type of a complication. But... Literally, if it was a few more minutes, this patient would have died. And so really what it did is I'm at this pinnacle of success and I'm operating, you know, almost every day, seeing all these patients thinking that uh, I've like made it. It really dawned on me that there has to be a better way. You know, here's this patient who almost died from surgery. And I started thinking, like, how can I prevent people from having to even take this risk? So I really dug down into the research and started really looking at foods that people eat that can cause aging or that can reverse it, clean skincare, and the plethora of non-invasive and minimally invasive options, and created this idea of holistic plastic surgery, looking at the body as a whole and using actual surgery as an absolute last resort. Uh, and that's what started, and it really has taken off now in that we have so many people who are adherents to it and I'm really excited to continue to take this to the masses. You know, it's interesting when you think about it. Here you are. You're, you're a trained surgeon preaching non-surgical procedures, whatever you can, or non-surgical care or non-surgical uh, approaches, which is fascinating. 
So how much of your practice is revolves around helping people understand their holistic approach and their diet and caring for themselves as compared to surgery? You know, it's interesting because in my office, we'll see maybe 50 patients a day. but And so with them, we do these minor procedures. I'd say probably one out of every 30 or 40 people in my practice actually has surgery. The rest of them are non-surgical, skin care, and all these other types of things. But even though I may see 50 people in my office in a day, it's thousands of people that we have online, you know, on my podcast, on YouTube, on yeah. uh, Facebook and Instagram. I mean, that's where we really are being able to spread the word. Because, yeah, I can help 50 people a day in my office, but if I can help thousands of people by reaching them and giving them the information to help them to, you know, in a healthy way, turn back the clock and get the look in the the health that they've always wanted, that's my goal here, is to treat not just the 50 a day, but thousands and thousands a day. That's a, that's a heck of a goal. You know, I, I have the rare opportunity, I call it a blessing, of doing that on my television show. So, But exactly. I help people with business practices, right, and personal accountability and things like that. And it's amazing how through media, whether it's your website, whether it's your podcast, your book, how many people you can actually touch. So... I'm I'm going to corny here for a second, okay? What are no the what are and I'm going to ask you where your websites are and all that because I want people to be able to to learn from you and we'll give them all that information in a minute. But what are the big three when it comes to just health and responsibility with all the research and everything you find? If I could corner you and say, doctor, what are the big three things that if I focus on, I can change my life? Are there a big three? I think there are. No, definitely. So, I mean, I, I'm going to make it very specific. Okay. Okay. And I'm not going to talk about sunblock because any plaster and dermatologist we'll will give say that. So the first thing, uh, as far as big three, number one is reduce the sugar that you eat. Okay. We eat so much sugar in our uh, society and sugar is the great ager of our skin. Wow. Okay. So once again, I'm not going to talk about sun or smoking. People know about that, but okay. sugar is a big, big thing. So reduce the sugar that you eat. Decrease the amount of carbs that you eat, like mm-hmm. bread, white rice, white pasta. Mm-hmm. The number two thing that I would recommend is uh, retinol cream. So there's so many products out there, so many creams out there that you can buy, and people are very confused of what should they use. What I would recommend, if you buy one anti-aging cream that you use for the rest of your life, buy a retinol moisturizer. Scientifically proven to reverse aging, wow. to uh, reverse fine lines, smooth fine lines to thicken the skin and even can potentially reverse early pre-skin cancers. Wow. So if you do one cream, apply that every night. Retinol cream, a lot of skincare companies have it. I have one um, that's natural and organic, but you can get them at drugstores all around the country. Uh, the third thing that I would recommend, and it's totally optional if you have the ability to do it, um, and just because I'm a plastic surgeon, yep. I, IPL intense pulse light. So not that expensive. It's similar to a laser treatment for those people who've got dark spots because of old sun damage. Super easy way to do that without toxicity, without chemicals, without any anything like that. And most med spas, plastic surgeon, dermatologist offices offer that. Awesome. Great bang for your buck. So what is it? A, a high power pulsating light in essence? Yep, exactly. Interesting. So it targets, it targets the dark colors and it turns them darker, and they basically slough off. Wow. So bang for your buck, very, very good bang for your buck if you're looking for anti-aging and, and just feeling good about your skin. Uh, it can do wonders for so many people. Yeah. I'm going to guess. I, I know you're going to smile when I say this. Every month I get hundreds of emails from people that just say thank you. People I've <laughs> never met around the country that, that watch what I do, and I can't stop doing it because of those letters you know, because of those emails. Do you realize, do you ever take a moment to sit back and realize how much good you're doing? And I'm going to make you blush, but have you ever really thought about the thousands of people you've never met that are going to listen to your advice and they're going to change their existence and they're going to look younger and smile more and live happier lives? Do you ever sit back and relish in in that success? You know, when I first came, that's a great question. When I first came out with my first book in stitches, I would get handwritten letters from people saying that I read your book and I feel for you like this was my story too. And to me, actually, that means the most. And I've had so many of those. Uh, I'm excited when playing God comes out that, uh, that I'm hoping to hear from people that way as well. 
Um, but I think even more, and I really want to give you props. I know that you're interviewing me, John, but you know, you say, well, I do business and this and that. I don't know that if you quite realize that the people that you um, help to spread the word, you know, you're really reaching upwards of a billion people possibly or more because each person that you help spread the word, they're helping hundreds or thousands of people themselves. And so your, um, you know, your, your influence is exponentially larger than what, you know, your massive numbers are as they are. Wow. So I really want to give you props for, and you know, thank you for having me on because everybody that I help is because, you know, that finds out through me is because of you. And that's uh -huh. just, you know, once again, more, more than just giving advice, like you said earlier about business and, and, uh, you know, trying to, to make it, uh, it's so much more than that. Yeah. You know, I love people, uh, doctor who are just passionate. You're, you're a great guy. You're, you're, you're all about helping people and passion and, you know, thank, thank God that your father chose to make you a doctor. <laughs> he really made the right decision, didn't he? Because when I look at you today, he re you're right out of central casting. I mean, I couldn't imagine someone with a better mindset or ability to be a doctor. So your father must have had some vision <laughs> way back then. So, doctor, where can people find you? Tell everybody about your website and where they can find more information on your holistic approaches and, and, and care and, and get in touch with you. Yeah, my website is dryoun.com, D-R-Y-O-U-N.com. And for anybody who's interested, I have uh, two free books. Uh, one is 10 Things Every Plastic Surgery Patient Must Know. So if you're thinking about any type of a cosmetic procedure, all you do is sign up for our email list, and we will send you that free book. The other one is What to Eat to Look Younger. Uh, what we eat has a profound impact on how we look and how quickly we age. So I'm happy to send any of your followers those free ebooks. They so just go to the website, dryoun.com. And they'll find there. We're on YouTube at Tony Yoon MD. We're on um, Instagram at Tony Yoon MD as well. And I've got my own podcast, The Holistic Plastic Surgery Show. So people who are interested in learning about holistic plastic surgery, holistic health, um, it's a great resource. You know, it's almost one of those things where if I listen to you now, I won't have to use you later. <laughs> that's the hope. If we can prevent people from going under the knife, then I've done the right thing. Yeah, that's unbelievable. What a pleasure, uh, Dr. Yoon. I really enjoyed every minute together. I hope everybody goes and checks out your website. You know, business is wonderful and family is great, but if we're not good to ourselves, we can't be good to anyone else. If we don't have our own health, we don't have our own self-confidence, right? We don't feel good in public. We can't come through for our families, our friends, our customers, our businesses, our partners. It all starts with us. And I think going to your site and, and learning about your holistic approach is a great way we can all take care of ourselves. Thanks, Doc. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Anthony Yoon is a heck of a guy, boy. I learned a lot talking to him. Well, that sort of winds it up for this week. Please don't forget, hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. Let's get these 3 million downloads up to 4 million. What do you say? Let's do it. Yeah, I'm into it. Thank you all. Talk to you next week. The Jordan Harbinger Show is one of the most popular interview podcasts in the world. On the show, your host, that's me, Jordan Harbinger, deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth and shares their strategies, perspectives, and practical insights with you so that you can apply it for yourself. I'll teach you how to read body language and master nonverbal communication, how to network and negotiate. And recently, I interviewed an FBI hostage negotiator who teaches us how to get people to like and trust you. I've also had neuroscientists and Navy SEALs tell us how to develop resilience and mental toughness. Of course, we've got some amazing stories from people that have lived them, from crazy kidnapping stories, going undercover with the CIA, to illusionists who can seemingly program our brains. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers everything that will help you upgrade your brain so you can become a high performer both at home and at work. In fact, every episode has worksheets so you can make sure you're internalizing and applying what you learn from the guests. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show, in which I interview our very own John Taffer. And while you're listening, go subscribe to The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts and PodcastOne.com. There's also a link in the episode notes that will take you there. I put my heart and soul into this one, and I know you're going to love it. If we look at our own business experiences, 
And I asked, I said, Jordan, I want you to close your eyes and picture the best person you've ever worked with. You're not going to tell me they had the best technical skills. No. You're going to pick somebody with attitude. That's right. Teamwork, skill, aggressiveness, passion. Those are the things that you define greatness by yourself. Sure. So why wouldn't you hire for them? Why would you put something that you don't even identify as greatness in your own brain ahead? So the resume doesn't mean anything. It's all about the personality. So the way I interview people is I break it down. So interviews are complete bull. I say to you, you're good under pressure. You know what I want to hear. Oh, I'm right. great under pressure. Right, yeah. you know, two hours later, you're hysterical cry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I don't do that. That's funny. I'm going to say things to you like, Jordan, what did you do in high school? Tell me about yourself. Mm. That's you how you started started our interview on, uh, on your show. Because it tells me yeah. about your personality. What did you like to do? What did you not like to do? What do you do with your free time? Those are the things that are important to me. You know, what are your energy levels? You know, what, are, what is your inquisitiveness? What is your passion? Do you love people? Do you love communicating? What are the things that, that are really the attributes that I know can equate to greatness? And once I get that out of the way, then I might look at your resume for experience only to figure out where I got to train you. But that's not a hiring decision. The experience is not the hiring decision. Uh, uh, you give me somebody who's, who's never run a nightclub or bar or restaurant in the world, time in their lives, never worked in one before, with the right personality in two weeks, and I'll show you a great general manager. Thanks again for listening. And remember, you can find The Jordan Harbinger Show available on Apple Podcasts and PodcastOne.com.